0: We pray in his name. Amen. Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read briefly from Revelation 19. Just verses 1 through 9. This vision of John from the island of Patmos, this little chunk of it, Will give us a bit of context for what is happening in Psalm 118. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 118, the last of the Egyptian Hillels. And as we look at it together this morning, let's think about it in the light of Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 9. You're now the Word of the Lord. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. Again they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And her wife has made herself ready. His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, "Write." Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Amen. John, standing in Patmos, is imagining anything but victory over the great prostitute, Rome. He is subject to her persecution. He is imprisoned alone on this island in the Mediterranean. Everything in his present circumstances cries out, Rome is greater than Christ. But then John is caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. Does that ever happen to you? Have you ever looked at the world and said, "Everything here says Jesus is not on his throne. Everything here says that Jesus hasn't saved. And then all of a sudden, on the Lord's day, we're caught up in the spirit. And we see the truth. We see the reality as John sees it. This world is done. This world of sin and misery. This life of punishment is done. What John sees by faith. What we must see with John by faith. Is the great hallelujah to which we are headed. These psalms, through which we have journeyed, 113 through 118, are the Egyptian Hallels. The psalms which look at the Exodus and train us to pray up out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the Promised Land. The psalms that train us to pray from the island of Patmos to the heavenly reality. Psalms which train us to say, Hallelujah. Even when nothing feels like Hallelujah. Even when nothing looks like Hallelujah. Nothing sounds like Hallelujah. But with faith, we see the truth in heaven and say, Hallelujah. That in mind, turn back to Psalm 118. Our psalm this morning is the last of the Egyptian Hillels. It is by far the longest of the Egyptian Hillels. In fact, you could fit most of its predecessors into the same space that this psalm fits in. As hopefully you'll see throughout the course of the sermon, that's because this psalm is summing up all the themes of the previous hillels. It's taking each of those pieces. How do we pray for our future? How do we pray for our home? How do we... Pray for our family. How, how do we pray about our death? And Psalm 118 takes all of that. How do we pray about our world? Psalm 17. He takes all. Psalm 118 takes all of those themes and it pulls it all together. Psalm 118. Hear now the word of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good; for His mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. And He has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live. And declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely. But he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. Through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you. For you have answered me. And have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. And He has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give you praise. You are my God. I will exalt you. We'll give thanks to the Lord. For He is good. His mercy endures forever. Amen. In the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, I was sitting on top of a hay wagon full of rotten old hay. We had pitched it out of the barn into the wagon in order to bring it down into a ravine and to dump it so that the barn was clear and fresh and ready for the new bales of hay. The wagon was very full, and I was seated at the very, very top. And as we descended into the steep bank of the ravine, I thought to myself, this seems a dangerous business, but I was already perched and it was too late. Halfway down the hill, I heard my father shout, but I couldn't hear what he said. Next thing I knew, I was experiencing flight. The hay wagon tipped over. And I was launched through the air. I landed in a seated position. According to the doctor who examined me later at the hospital, I played an accordion on my spine. I compressed it and then released it. Bouncing into the air, I landed on my back. My father and the old Dutch farmer came running over to check on me. I had no feeling in my legs and I couldn't walk. I got my first helicopter ride, but I couldn't see anything. I was strapped to a board. Later that evening lying in the hospital. This is a different side story, but if you want to know about fun, I have two bones in my lower back that are about half the size of that they ought to be. I got up out of the bed and I walked to the van and sat down with my folks. And I remember thinking as we went to church that Sunday how remarkable it was. My parents were like uh, in the book of Acts, leaping and singing and praising God. The church was rejoicing and praising God, and I was sitting in a pew and, and thinking about how much joy everyone had because I could walk, because I was not paralyzed. And I remember this feeling suddenly hitting me in the midst of the sermon. Would we be doing this if I hadn't been healed? What if I couldn't walk? What is it that would make someone rejoice when things don't go their way? What is it that would make someone rejoice when they've lost so much? And Psalm 118 answers climactically, dramatically, forcefully Jesus is worthy. This is the pinnacle, this is the end to which we are going. My friends, the whole point of every experience in your life, from the stop sign to the red light to the sunshine to the meal to the friendship and the family and the home, every single experience is intended by God to communicate to you this truth. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And so we should pray our way into worship. What Psalm 118 wants us to do is to pray our way out of the present circumstance into the eternal worship of Jesus who is worthy. Think about this a little bit this morning. Notice in verses 1 through 4 that the psalmist roots worship, the act of worship, the performance of worship, joy in worship, in one thing. The New King James says his mercy endures forever. I prefer the translations that say love. His steadfast love endures forever. By this, the psalmist is not vaguely waving his hand and saying, there is this kind-hearted disposition that God has toward us. He isn't speaking in the American sensibility by which he says his love endures forever. You know, like the pop song, I'll love you at least until we divorce no, no. he means a clear and compelling love. These are psalms that reflect on the exodus. His love endures forever. Let me illustrate it. He told Abraham, you're going to get the land. Your descendants will live in it. It took 400 years. His love endures forever. He is a patient God. After the 400 years, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And their shoes never wore out and their garments never failed. Amen. And they came safely into the promised land and they possessed it according to the promise. His love endures forever. It lasted the 400 years. It lasted the 40 years. Though it took 440 years to possess the land of promise... He saw them safely through to the achievement of the promise. His love endures forever. But then, lastly, Joshua and all the people of Israel, having waited patiently 440 years for the love of God that never failed them to finally deliver on the promise, camped at the Jordan River for three days. Between Abraham receiving the promise and Joshua possessing the promise, was 440 years and three days. Do you know why I belabor that point? Because those numbers surely should ring a bell for some of you. When Malachi wrote the final book in the Old Testament, God went silent for 400 years. And then Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And then Jesus was in the grave for three years. Three days. Sorry, three days. It's the same numbers. And it's intended to be the same numbers. The exodus is not dry, dusty history about long dead people. It is the story of our salvation. It is the proof that our God's love endures forever. 440 years in three days and the promise never fails. And the love never ran out. And we turn to Jesus and we see it as the same. That from Egypt to Jerusalem, the promise of God is yea and amen. That from slavery to celebration, the promises of God in Christ have never once failed. Though we seem to be waiting an awful long time. From the promise to the promised land. From this present pain to the future glory, the psalmist is trying to train us to pray, Help, Lord, so that we in time might say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Each of these psalms, in 118 most especially, is trying to teach us that by praying help, we are positioning ourselves before God in a way that allows us to come to Hallelujah. Hallelujah ultimately pray hallelujah we look at the present problem in the light of jesus now i was recently reading uh it was a book tom gave me it's on evangelicalism He, he mentioned in the middle of it something about evangelicals recently as in like the 1970s and 80s got really attracted to rationalist methodology and they liked giving like five-step programs and 12 things. Have you guys ever seen like all the really super popular evangelical blogs? Every single title is like three steps four, five ingredients of, like I kid you not, Like, we always have numbers. At the risk of falling into a trend, <laughs> I have this morning five steps <laughs> from Psalm 118 that Positions us, that moves us and trains us to pray hallelujah, but to end. I'm sorry, to pray, help me, Lord, and to end hallelujah. The first step in learning to sing hallelujah and learning to say hallelujah begins in verses 5 through 9. The psalmist here in 118 notes that I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. What the psalmist here speaks of, quite simply, is prayer. That he called on the Lord because he was distressed. This distress was humans. Humans were around him. Humans were causing him to be afraid. These humans were those who were no longer trying to help him, but those who indeed hated him. According to verses 8 and 9, these are humans of some significance perhaps even princes. This, of course, is fitting in the experience of Israel. They were the ones oppressed by the power of Egypt, under the heel of the princes and pharaoh down in the land of Egypt. What is more, they were the ones opposed by the great ancient kingdoms, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites. When they go into the land of promise under Joshua, they are facing the great Canaanite kingdoms which have been enthroned in power for 400 years. The Amorites have ruled for longer than America has existed when Joshua comes knocking on the door at the Jordan. But notice what Israel has learned to pray. I called on the Lord in my distress. They have learned to cry, Help me, Lord. Down in Egypt they cried, Help me, Lord. At the edge of the Red Sea, they cried, Help me, Lord. In the wilderness, when they were hungry, when they were thirsty, they said, Help me, Lord. And now here at the edge of the Jordan, on the verge of conquest and victory, they yet once more pray, Help me, Lord. And notice the effect of such a prayer. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. I will trust in the Lord. It is better. I will trust in the Lord. It is better. Verse 7, for the Lord is with me among those who help me. By this, the psalmist calls us back to the experience of Joshua, who has gathered his great army around, this, around the edge of the Jordan River. There they are camped three days before they pass into the land of promise and begin the fight. Joshua, in the evening, steps away from all the army that is gathered to help him. And as king and head, as judge over the people, Joshua is worried about his adequacy for leadership. This is not surprising. Moses dealt with the same thing. As a matter of fact, there's never been a leader of the church who was worthy of being a leader of the church who didn't worry about his adequacy. And as he steps away from the people of God and their advance into the promised land, Joshua encounters someone. And not just Someone. Like, the someone. He meets the commander of the Lord's army. Can you imagine Joshua's initial response? I mean, for me, there would be the temptation to look at him and say, I thought that was me. What's going on? And the commander of the Lord's army says, I'm not on your side. And I'm not on the Canaanite side. Joshua, you're on my side. This is my army, Joshua. This is my church. We have a king in a head. It's not me. It's not your session. It's not your sin. It's Christ. You see, we must learn to cry help. Because it is only in the position of prayer that we actually then finally get our eyes on the same plane as Christ. So often we do not see Jesus at work because we're not looking for him. We're not praying. We're not crying, help me, Lord. We're not embracing our position of dependence. We're not humbling ourselves to trust in the Lord and to look upon Him with confidence. We must recognize that the Lord is with us. He is among us. Why do we so seldom see it? For we are so seldom crying, help. There's a specific application I would make of this. When you pray, pray for something specific. As specific as you can get it. The reason isn't because you want to bind God to your specific ambition. The reason is, is because most of us pray things like, bless so and so. And it's so broad and so vague, our eyes can't see it when it happens. Because we haven't learned what blessings look like. And so we don't know if it's been answered. But when we learn to pray, help, Lord, help here, help with this, then we see Jesus. Then our eyes are opened and we see Jesus is among us and Jesus is with us and Jesus is at work with us. We need to first step back and pray, help, ask for help. But once you've done that, there's an important, very important second step watch. Having prayed help Lord, we watch. Verses 10 through 14, the psalmist notes the dire situation in which they had existed. All nations surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. They surrounded me like bees. They pushed me violently that I might fall. The psalmist notes, Israel notes, that they are alone in the world. Down there in Egypt, they are surrounded by the national power of Egypt. And Israel can't compete. Coming up into the wilderness, they are surrounded by the nations. And they can't compete. Going far more into the land of promise, Israel is in a desperate situation. I like God's battle plan. It's dramatic. It's amazing. He comes to them in a very unmilitaristic fashion. And he says... You know what? You're not going to come up the road that goes into the land of Canaan. You're going to go out through the wilderness and come into the side of Canaan. Militaristically, what this does is it embeds the army of Israel in the very middle of all their enemies. They're not going to start at the edge and nibble their way into the promised land. They're going to drive right into the heart of the promised land and be surrounded by all their enemies. This is not militarily a really good idea. But God's a good general. And he immerses his people in their enemies. He surrounds them by their enemies. And they overcome. In the name of the Lord I destroy them. In the name of the Lord I destroy them. For the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Three times Israel discovers that there is victory in the name of Jesus. The name of the Lord, which means, I am with you. This name, Yahweh, yod Hei vav means, I am. But not merely that, it means, I am here, and I am with you. It is this presence of God that we are so often ignorant and unaware of. It is this attentiveness to God that strengthens us to victory. Notice verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. What Israel is here singing is that it is the presence of God that causes us to overpower our surrounding enemies. It is the presence of God that gave Israel conquest in the land of Canaan. You can see parallel passages, Psalm 60, Psalm 83. They have the same refrain. Those two Psalms which celebrate the conquest of Canaan put in the pinnacle place the name of the Lord. The truth that God is with us, that God is among us, that God is here, is the truth that gives us power to overcome. Notice, though, in verse 14, there is something incredibly dramatic happening. The Lord is my strength. The ability to face every sin and every sorrow and every enemy that constantly surrounds me. He is my strength. He is. Not he gives me strength. Not I have strength thanks to him. He himself is my strength. If I don't have him, I don't have strength. Secondly, he is my song. Not he gives me song. But this song of victory and of triumph, this this song of hope and of help, this song of hallelujah... Is him with me. I sing with him. If I could lean in just a little bit. On psalmody. Just briefly. This is why psalmody is a hill to die on. These aren't just good songs. These are Jesus's songs. They're the ones he sang. They're the ones he lived. They're the ones he gave us. He is our song. When we sing psalms, we sing with Jesus. We sing about Jesus. We sing to Jesus. There are so many prepositions I can stick in there. He is our song. And then thirdly, He has become my salvation. I've hit this point many times. I hope it's the one piece of Hebrew that you guys all pick up. How do you say my salvation in Hebrew? Yeshua. Jesus. He has become my Jesus. The Lord who is with me is not with me in abstract thought and systematic theology. The Lord who is with me is not with me in moral behavior, in right living. He is with me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who, by the way, leads me to right theology and right behavior. So let's not throw it out. Let's just put it behind Jesus. That Jesus leads us into right thinking. Jesus leads us into right action. He has become my salvation. What Psalm 118 is moving us to do is to step back, to watch To see he is the helper, he is the one with us. I love this phrase, but the Lord helped me. Verse 13, the one who has given us help, the one who has given us life, the one who has intervened and saved us, he is the helper. For this reason, the psalmist then lays out the three other responses. If we are to live a life of hallelujah, if we are to move from help me to hallelujah, we must first cry out, help me. And then we have to get out of the way. Then we have to step back and know that it is the name of the Lord that saves. We have to step back and know that it is Christ who saves. And then we start to celebrate. The final three responses... Steps two or steps 3, 4, and 5 are all celebration. We celebrate the help. Notice verse 15. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but He has not given me over to death. In this, Israel is proclaiming the nature of their engagement with their enemies. They voice with joy the salvation in their tents of the righteous. This is incredibly important. Remember the connection with Psalm 149. That when we have the praises of God in our mouths, we have a two-edged sword in our hands. Our conquest does not lie chiefly in our ability to outreason all the smart people in the world. Our victory does not lie chiefly in our ability to outperform all the other social organizations in our community. What we bring to the world, more than anything else, what we bring to the world that overcomes the world is a voice of rejoicing in salvation. We have the word hallelujah. We have the word praise the Lord. We have the reason to praise the Lord because he helps. Because in Jesus he saves. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is among us. We sing with joy. And this singing overcomes the world. It's rooted in this proclamation of the right hand. This is where it gets very awkward. I'm left-handed. In Hebrew culture, left-handed people were basically taught not to be left-handed. There's a very famous example of the Benjamites who were left-handed slingshots, but that story is told because it's super unusual. The reason for this is because all ancient cultures believed and understood that the right hand was by nature, even in left-handed people, strong and skillful. And so if you were a left-handed person who insisted on using your left hand, that's just because you were weak and silly. No matter who you are, your right hand is the hand of strength. The hand of power. And so the Hebrews, in keeping with their ancient custom, said the Lord's right hand is valiant, it is exalted. The hand that does the work, the hand that does the help, the hand that saves, the hand that destroys the enemy, the hand that affects the name of God, that brings his presence into the world. By the way, this is a metaphor. It's an earthly representation of a spiritual reality. God, you may recall from the children's catechism, is a spirit and does not have a body like men. He doesn't have a right hand. So what does the psalmist mean when it says, His right hand has done valiantly and will be exalted? He means that the one who sits at his right hand has done valiantly and been exalted. He means Jesus, the very right hand of God, The one who does his work. The word that brought the worlds into existence. The word by which we are saved. The word that is proclaimed to us through the apostles teaching. That right hand of God. Jesus Christ. He does valiantly. He is exalted. Let us rejoice. Let us celebrate our Jesus. Notice in this celebration we can proclaim the great Passover Psalms. These Egyptian Hallels. I'll not die. I'll live. I'll declare the works of the Lord. though he has chastened me, he has not given me over to death. There is this vision that the Psalms here are celebrating that first great work of Passover, the Exodus. We see the connection here where Joshua comes up to to the Jordan River. For three days he encamps. There crying out, help me Lord. Joshua sees the Christ figure. He sees the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army and worships him. But then Joshua and his army crosses over and intentionally surrounds themselves with their enemies. And before they engage in the battle plan, they do one last thing. There on the western shore of the river, they keep the Passover. And you know what dramatic and amazing thing happens? I keep using that word. I hope you're catching that. Dramatic. You know what happens? They eat the Passover. And the manna stops. They are no longer a people of wilderness. They are no longer a perishing generation living off manna from heaven. They have kept the Passover. They have come into possession of the promise and its reality. They will not die, they will live and declare the works of God. They will not perish in the wilderness, they will worship God in the land. They will occupy the houses in the cities, in the vineyards, in the cisterns. And they will live in the land. This is the vision for us. That we should say, help Lord. And expect Him to help. And expect Him to give us life and life abundantly. Expect that strong right hand to sustain us. So that we can celebrate. But because this is so... Because we can celebrate the life that we have in abundance, we should also celebrate it together. Notice in verses 19 through 25, the psalmist says, Open the gates of righteousness. Verse 20, it is the gate of the Lord that the righteous enter in. By this, the psalmist is imagining as Israel goes up to keep that Passover. The historical fulfillment has come to pass. Israel is indeed in the land of promise. And they are now going up to Jerusalem to worship together. Because this is the case, because they are entering into Jerusalem to worship, they witness something extraordinary there. They worship the cornerstone. They witness the cornerstone. The cornerstone builders had rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing. The builders didn't want the stone, but the Lord did. It is marvelous to us who have seen it. My friends, something dramatic has just happened in the psalm. These gates of righteousness, these gates through which the righteous enter in order to worship God, in which they witness the chief cornerstone, having been rejected by the builders, but chosen by God, beloved and precious. There is no fulfillment in the Exodus event. Done. History lesson over. The psalm transcends its history. You see, when Joshua conquered the land of promise, he didn't conquer Jerusalem. It is specifically named as a city unconquered by Joshua. Why is it not conquered by Joshua? Because there is a king who is coming, and it's his city. That king is David, but of course he was just a type and shadow. That king is Jesus. And the gates of righteousness through which we enter may look like some swinging doors, but they're not. They are the gates of Jesus Christ, king and head of the church. To whom we turn in our hour of need, he is our help. We must praise him. Notice the verse 21 You have become my salvation. He has become our Jesus, the one who is the chief cornerstone. Jesus himself proclaims that verse 22 has no Old Testament antecedent, that that cornerstone that is spoken of in Psalm 118 is him and him alone. There is no cornerstone in Jerusalem worthy to be bowed to or worshiped to. The Western Wall is a cool historical artifact. It has no theological significance. We have Christ, not stone. We have Christ. He is the cornerstone on which the church is built, on which our lives are built. It is marvelous in our eyes. My friends, is it really? Is it really marvelous in our eyes? Let me tell you what I often experience both as person and as pastor. That we are marvelously overawed by everything in the world and by everything in the church. And the vast majority of us don't give much more than a few minutes to Jesus. Is he marvelous in our eyes? The reality that God would become Jesus in order to save us. The reality that when I say, Help me, Lord, he doesn't send me a thought, he doesn't send me an object, he doesn't send me an army or money or a house. When I cry out, help me, Lord, he comes in the flesh to be with me, to be my helper. The Lord is beside me. The Lord is with me. The Lord is among me. This is the day the Lord has made, the day that God became man, the day that God joined us. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. The day in which resurrection is preached to you. The day in which we, my friends, are separated from this world by a love of Christ. A love of Him for us and a love for us for Him. And so the psalmist prays, save us now, O Lord, O Lord, send. I like the other translation, success. This is a tremendous verse. It sits at a climactic moment in the life of Christ. If I were to give you the Hebrew word that is translated, save us, O Lord, you would recognize it. The Hebrew word is Hosanna. This is the verse that the crowd is shouting with their palm branches as Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem. Here comes the king riding on a donkey according to Zechariah 9. Here comes the king. And what do they do? They wave the palm branches and they shout aloud Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize here is the Christ. Here is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he ought to be blessed from the house of the Lord. He comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Hosanna. This is the day. It's at last come. Hooray for the day. But of course, you guys know the rest of the story, don't you? When they saw that chief cornerstone sitting on a donkey, when they saw that conquering king coming in the sign of peace, they cried out, Psalm 118 is fulfilled. Here it is. Jesus has come. And what did they cry out within 24 hours, within within a week? Crucify him, crucify him. Why is that? Why is that? Because crucifixion is not marvelous in our eyes. Because when we want to see divinity, we want it to look with majesty and with glory. When we want to see divinity, we want to see it great and superlative. We want Him to come with royal power and authority. And when we cry, help, Lord. We want him to come racing in, destroy our enemies and prop us up. My friends, that's Hollywood, not the gospel. When we pray, help me, Lord, his answer is, I have. I came and I died for you. I will. I'm with you to the end. But but what about not dying? You're going to die. But I've already died for you. And I'll be there with you to the end. But what about getting healthy and whole? I'll work that out. That's the resurrection. We cling so tightly to all the things he's trying to get rid of. We see so worthy and wonderful. All the things that he says, that's not me. That's not me. What Psalm 118 is trying to show us, what all the Egyptian Hallels are trying to show us, is that we must move from life to death to life everlasting. That we must move from self to Jesus. That prayer in the hour of need is intended not to move or change the world or God, but us. To empower us to the great emptying of self. The great destruction of self. This is why I read Galatians. The great end and goal of your life is that you could lie on a bed when you are sick and bereft of wealth and beauty and power and privilege and everything you cherish in this world. And when you lie there, sick and on the edge of death, you can say with the Apostle Paul, it is no longer I who live. My life has been emptied out and hollowed. Like a rotten log, there's nothing left. But it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I will live for all eternity. Because I live it in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Psalm 118 is training us to do. To pray from problem to promise. To pray from slavery to celebration. To pray from self to Savior. The Lord is God. He has given us light. We bind now the sacrifice to the cords the horn of the altar. This is the great Passover where Jesus is the sacrifice bound to the horns of the altar. And so we confess you are my God. What I find so extraordinary about the Egyptian Hallel, what I find so powerful about Psalm 118 is not only that it speaks so personally and and so truthfully to me and my experience, it speaks to Christ. Because you remember that little phrase in the, hymn, in the, uh, in the Gospels? On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And the last thing they do before they leave the upper room to go to Gethsemane is what? They sing a hymn. You know what hymn it is? Psalm 118. He's about to die, and he sings with his disciples. I shall not die, but live and tell his power to save. He believes in the resurrection. What equipped Christ to carry his cross? The Egyptian Hallels. Singing Psalm 118 with his disciples. This is not small stuff we do. I know it's a two minute psalm. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing 118D. And it's going to take us 90 seconds, two minutes. And it's the most powerful thing you'll do today. It's the most important thing you'll do today. Because it's the psalm that trains us to pray with resurrection in view. To pray with this confession on our lips and in our hearts. You are my God. Notice verse 28. You are my God. It says it twice. "You are my God. You are my God. I will praise you, I will exalt you. My life is given to this, to the praise and exaltion of God. But in the context, who is this God? Verse 27. "He is the Lord, the one who is here, the one who is with us. He is the light. And Jesus said, "I am the light of the world, but bind the sacrifice." How many of us look at a sacrifice, a crucified Christ, and say, you are my God? Pliny the Younger is an early Roman. He looks very dramatically, there's that word again, at the early church, and he sees something extraordinary. He says this line, they worship a crucified Jew as if he were God. Oh, that we should be so condemned. You are my God. My God is not an abstract set of ideas. My God is not a force in the heavens. My God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are my God. And so the psalmist concludes... Let's give thanks. Let's give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. The Egyptian Hallels lead us to Jesus. The Egyptian Hallels train us to pray from self to Jesus. And there is one other image I want you guys to get. There was a battle in the wilderness for ancient Israel. In which Joshua is leading the army. That vision of Christ, the conquering king at the head of his force. But he would only win against those Amorites when Moses, the priest, was on the hilltop with hands uplifted in prayer. And when those arms get tired, because, oh boy, let me tell you, praying arms get tired. Amen. they sag. So what's Moses do? He sits down on a rock and he gets two guys to hold his arms up. What an awesome vision of life in the church. What an awesome vision of how we overcome the world, how we conquer kingdoms. We keep each other praying. This is what the Egyptian Hawels are doing. We must pray. We can't win without it, we can't even survive without it. And we have to hold one another up in prayer. Of course, there's an immediate application to that. What are you doing tonight? 6 p.m. on Zoom, we're back here. We're going to pick each other's arms up and we're going to pray. Beloved, this is the gospel for us this morning, the good news. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your death. He's worthy of your love. He's worthy of your worship. And so when you pray, make sure your prayer has this arc, help to hallelujah. If it doesn't, see the Psalms, see the Egyptian Hillels. Pray them. They will train you to pray from help to hallelujah. Jesus is worthy. Pray your way into worship. Please pray with me now. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful psalm. We give you thanks that you are our strength and our song and our help. You are our deliverer, our savior. You are the God who is here and who is with us. You are the God who knows us and attends to us. Forgive us, Father, that we so often ignore you. Forgive us, Father, that we so little pray. Forgive us, Father, that we so little sing. And so little say, hallelujah. Oh, Father, move us. Move us to a true state of dependence and of trust that we would pray, help us. And then, Father, move us into that sweet hallelujah by which we have borne witness to you and your worthiness. Father, work such salvation among us today and this week that we might know our Jesus and celebrate him. We pray in his name. Amen.